Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Hey, loyal listeners. I'll be hosting this episode myself. I've been involved in software development for more than 25 years. I've started companies, led companies, and worked for companies, doing many different things. I'm honored to be considered a leader in Alberta's innovation ecosystem, and I give back as much and as often as I can. When I'm not working or podcasting, you'll find me pursuing my passions of photography, crypto investing, and woodworking, along with the occasional round of golf. Now come geek out with Ross Platel and myself as we talk about all things tech. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, my special guest today is Ross Platel. Ross is no stranger to the rainforest, and uh, he's been you know, a big player in the tech and innovation community in Alberta. Ross, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, great to be here, Al. Thanks for having me. Ross, I, I want to get into some of the stuff that, that you're really passionate about, but before we go there... I want to talk a little bit about who you are. Who's Ross? Where did you come from? How did you get involved in all the things that you've got your hands in these days? So originally, I'm born and raised here in Calgary. I ended up getting my university degree here at UFC in Urban Studies. And around the later portion of my degree, there began to become this emerging field called smart cities. And I've always been involved with technology. Like since I was 15, I was working at the local computer store uh, selling computers. But technology isn't necessarily my long-term, I want to say, singular focus. Taking the urban planning degree was originally an avenue for me to get into architecture. But really getting involved with urban planning and urban design, I saw that element and overlap between social and design and technology and all those different pieces that fit together. So through the end of my degree, I decided to start networking to see where I could find my career path. Originally, I went to some of the urban planning and architecture firms in the city, specifically asking them what they were looking at with regards to smart cities and new digital technologies being integrated in designs. A lot of the architecture firms had no idea what I was talking about. I even asked them about VR and augmented reality integration within their design processes. And there was one firm that said like, oh yeah, we have like a computer we couldn't get working in the back room and we don't think it's going to be a big thing. We still do all our drafting on paper and then the interns are the ones who digitize it for us. Yeah, it's surprising the number of firms that you walk into and their drafting tables are still literal drafting tables. And the interns are the only ones that really know how to use CAD in the digital drawing. So there's that gap that exists there. I imagine that gap has closed a little bit in recent years with the move to remote working and needing to collaborate online. But it's only been within that last few years that they're starting to realize that this technology exists. I ended up getting involved with some of the groups around that time focused on technology because my thinking was, okay, if it's not happening within the urban planning field and it's not happening within the architecture field, then the tech startup space and technology is what's going to push those industries to truly adopt and realize it. And it's interesting because in urban planning, things you think it takes a long time. 
And with the way plans are done, it's usually on five or 10 year plans. But when it comes to tech, it moves so much quicker. You think of like agile project management versus waterfall and how you need to be agile and agile doesn't really exist in that area of that industry yet. And it's just starting to peak interest. So that's kind of how I got involved in that space to start with and then moved into the startup areas with Rainforest. I got involved in person and attended some of the events. Originally, I attended one of the events downtown, just talking about, I think it was one of the awards. I'm trying to remember which one. But it was nice to really be a part of that energy and really feel the people that were focused on it. And even just being able to discuss those visionary ideas. That's one reason why I come back to Rainforest every week is you always find different people and you're able to open that discussion with them. And even if it's an idea that's unrelated to what their business or their work is, you can really engage with them on it and really sort of pitch the idea, talk about it, work on hypotheticals. Whereas other groups that I've been a part of, it's very like to the point, traditional type networking and when you don't see an opportunity for that small window usually people end up dropping off so you don't get that built-in ecosystem community i've been involved with a few other areas so uh, recently i became one of the co-leads for civic tech yyc which has been around for a number of years we've done projects like volley one of the volunteer apps we've done like blockchain experiments there's been a number of other projects and ideation that we work on there so we meet month to month. I've been hosting it on Zoom this year because we traditionally had it in person. I'm involved with volunteering with Alberta IoT. So they work on the IoT side of things. And I've been able to learn more about what's been going on with local companies in the smart city space from there because they've had PCL who's doing smart buildings and smart construction on. They've had a couple smart city events. So just kind of getting my fingers into all the different areas of the ecosystem to try and help find those connections and build those connections for kind of what my career and life focus is. You kind of addressed this a little bit, but with the companies that are doing some of the smart city and smart building type technologies and stuff, do you think they're doing it as an experiment or a showcase opportunity? Or do you think they're doing it for a financial motivation or because it's the right way to do things or where do you think that's kind of playing right now um financial motivation is definitely a big part of it pcl for their construction for example has been implementing iot sensors because it lowers their insurance so they will deploy those sensors and they can monitor what the conditions are on a specific floor at all times during the construction and because they can monitor it at all times, insurance is lower because then if the temperature suddenly changes and they have sensitive equipment or materials on that floor or something's drying, then they can immediately tend to it and they don't need to have people walking the facilities. But it means that because that tech's already being integrated for that initial purpose, they can then hand it off to the people who are buying the building and then they can utilize those sensors and still monitor those floors. Some of the existing tech's a little limiting in that the batteries within those pieces only last about five years. And when that's like built into the concrete, then eventually it just won't work after five years. Hard to change the batteries inside concrete. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you have a sensor that's embedded inside of a concrete wall, it's not really that easy to fix. But at least it gives five years that they can monitor what that's looking like. So it essentially creates an interesting warranty period for the building because you get that sort of marketing and analytics on it. And it helps them 
design it but that's from the financial side there is some pressure that's been coming from some of the tech side so you see like tesla starting to integrate their self-driving tech and there's talk about that being tested um microsoft and google are really pushing smart city tech even amazon's getting into it with all the cloud data centers and cloud analytics so it's coming from different angles but when you get to industries that are more traditional, like architecture and urban planning, that are very entrenched in their certifications and their history and their process, it takes a lot longer to get that new technology implementation into the minds of people that are working in that industry. I've been trying to network and create that advocacy for it because there's so many pressures from other sides that it needs to be even just reflected in general engagement. So like when we're engaging on new city projects or designs, I think that new technology should be considered and discussed as part of an opportunity for it because it's going to be developing and becoming general consumer technology and you'll have your phone be integrated into the city and all the rest of those services and it'll be something that people will want and expect it to be seamless and there's areas of the world that already have it integrated to that extent so it's not like it's anything new that needs to be proven as a proof of concept it's a matter of how do we implement it here within the ecosystem that we have and how do we do it in a way that everybody is finding a benefit? That's really, really fascinating. I know with my little investigation and adventures in cryptocurrency, I, I actually came across a cryptocurrency blockchain called Helium. And that was how I learned about the whole IoT network that's spreading all across the world. And I, I literally never heard about it because I heard about IoT devices, but I always assumed like you had to be near a Wi-Fi hotspot or you had to have some sort of way to connect to the internet that maybe involved a cell phone connection or something like that. Whereas the Helium network is literally a giant mesh across the entire world that's growing on an exponential rate. And these IoT devices don't have to have any major radios in them. They just have to have a, li a little tiny Bluetooth device or whatever, a Bluetooth radio, and then they just kind of connect out to to the Helium network, which is fascinating to me. And apparently Microsoft and uh, a bunch of those big players are writing their IoT device communication protocols and stuff like that to integrate with the Helium network because it's open source. And it's a completely open standard type network, which is really, really fascinating to me. So I imagine those building sensors and stuff like that might potentially operate on something like that. You know, if, if the battery lasts five years, they're certainly not using any kind of Wi-Fi or cellular radios or anything. Yeah, those are running on a lower end network. So long range wireless, very low data throughput, but it's able to ping and get that information relatively quickly. The city of Calgary actually has a whole lower end network across the entire city now. And they, they use it for noise sensors. So whenever there's reports of noise complaints or any major events, they can see that and get it on the network. All of the golf carts are on the lower end network. And then they've got GPS. So if anyone takes a golf cart for a joyride, they'll be able to find where it went. 
So we, we've already got some of that that's being implemented. And it, it's interesting to see the stratified network that's developing because you've got your small network that was traditionally in your house. I, I still remember when you could only get Wi-Fi on your laptop, like sitting at your desk next to your router. And now you can actually get it through the whole home and integrate all those IoT devices. And then there's that next stage where you're now creating a wireless network for a community or for a city. And you're starting to integrate city sensors as well as business sensors onto that network. The city of Calgary has their dark fiber network, which is a backbone that they're expanding for high data throughput to be able to integrate. And every new streetlight that goes into the city has one of those dark fiber connections on them. And then going to that next level, like you mentioned, like you making a long range network that can expand the entire globe. And then you've got the satellite internet systems that are going up now where you can then integrate those networks into the sat internet system. And then you've got an entire global network. And that has a much higher throughput that we're seeing by comparison to even just a few years ago. Like I was attending the Cyber Rural Connectivity Forum and we were talking about how a lot of the telecoms are not able to provide fast enough internet for people to be able to work and collaborate online. A lot of small towns, even with instructors that I work with on a regular basis, only have a megabit to three megabits per second internet, which is barely enough for them to be able to upload files for students. And then you look at the satellite internet and you're capable of getting 100 megabits per second down and 100 megabits per second up. And the latency has gotten even better over the last year than I expected. I mean, a lot of people say they're zoomed out, but as an introvert, I kind of enjoy it. So now I can, you know, like we can end this call and I can go grab a, you know, some food or, or go sit down on the couch or something and relax. Like it's really not, I don't have to drive home through rush hour traffic and all that. The interesting <laughs> thing I've heard, because I, I also like, I work for UFC and SAIT in online learning and a lot of the teachers because I also help out the, it's the Workland School of Education and their graduate students are specifically teachers who are currently in K-12. And they're noticing when they were teaching online and also we're noticing in university with teaching online that the introverts are the ones that are doing better in the online environment. And it's the extroverts that are having a really hard time. Just the medium works well for some, and I think it's going to change. This ties into my whole theory of like changing education and really focusing on learning that works for the learner. And it's really shown how that environment can be powerful. And there are ways to make really good online learning be engaged, but it requires the right instructor and the right people involved to really implement and use those tools. But when it works, it works really well. I agree. I agree. But you know what? They also have to do both, but not at the same time, right? So like you have to have online learning and in-person learning, but it shouldn't be the in-person learning that's getting recorded for the online people. They should literally have a separate instructor teaching online and focusing on online. And then the in-person instructor, whether you record it or not, is focused on the people in the room because it just never works when you have people online you know, short of, I guess, having like a little monitor on each desk where, where there's, you know, there's a human being in this desk and beside it, there's a monitor with a person's face on it on that desk. And so, I mean, that could potentially work, but they, that would be really expensive. I've seen some attempts at hybrid events before COVID, like one of the Alberta IoT events I was at, they had a speed networking and there was a section of online, but they tried to make it hybrid by putting a laptop instead of a person across the table at one of the sections. And then you came up to this laptop and they didn't even have headphones or a headset. 
And it's this room full of people that's talking. So now you're trying to talk to this laptop and it's just the screen that's there. And, and there is like attempts coming now to make things be hybrid, but it's almost like you, the, the way I see it working in some instances with education is if you have one or two people who are like TAs or assistants working at the front of the classroom, managing that online environment. And then if they have their hand up for a question, they're representing like 50 or 60 students online. So you have to ensure to be able to give them priority to ask and answer questions to hand it off to them. So it requires that mediary level to even make it work halfway as good. It's amazing, right? Like, can you imagine... 20 years ago, I, I read, just read an article the other day and there's a, there's a lot of countries in the world that can internet access to be like a human right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's becoming, you know, citywide infrastructure that you're able to access the internet. And, you know, I suspect that the, the cable providers and those sorts of fiber co- providers and stuff are very, very quickly going to just become, you know, that one utility, like you've got your water and you've got your gas and you got your electricity and you got your internet. And that's just, de facto standard every time you pull into a house or an apartment or whatever. I mean, it already is for the most part, but you, you still choose, you know, you're going to go get your internet from TELUS or you're going to get your internet from Shaw or you're going to get, go to whatever. I'm wondering how that's going to play out in the future. And, and, but it's really fascinating. And, you know, you have Shaw as an example, they have their Shaw go Wi-Fi hotspots all over the place. Like you, you can almost not go anywhere now where your phone doesn't connect to a SHA hotspot. With the SHA ones, it's interesting because it's a little bit limiting at times too, because you have to be a sh- specifically a SHA customer to be able to access it. Even if you are using Freedom's home internet, which runs through SHA's systems, you still don't get access to that SHA go Wi-Fi. But there's a few points where the SHA go Wi-Fi is free. Like if you're at one of the see train stations you can see the cisco routers there i think that one's still open access but there's still a kind of gate to that right you have to have your home internet you still might have your cell phone and hook into the wi-fi one of the things that i advocate for and i actually noticed telus was doing a thing for just black friday but i wish this was across the board where they're providing smartphones to people who need them because a smartphone is now almost the most essential element to keep connected to society you think about all of the apps now that are being developed and you have to have a smartphone to be able to use them two-factor authentication to be able to use accounts online or having a cell number to be able to receive a text message. I still remember when I was working in cell phone sales and I'd have people coming in who they wouldn't be accepted for credit to be able to get a phone. So they'd be forced into prepaid. And then being on prepaid, if you don't pay it, you lose access to the phone number. And sometimes you end up getting a new number. And these days, if a phone number is linked to an account and then you need access to that phone number to get into that account, you're now forced to make a new account again. Everything gets tied to that. So the phone numbers almost become an equivalent of a new type of digital SIN number. I think it should be treated that way a lot more seriously, where you should be able to have your number that is assigned to you as your personal ID phone number outside of having a work number. And at least in my opinion, that should be provided by the government. And some governments in the world are now doing that where they're mandating every single citizen should be provided with a phone number and base internet access on that mobile phone 
at least enough to access bare minimum services. Because speed is the key there, right? Where if you can provide somebody with a phone with a couple megabits per second of download, similar to how we have unlimited data plans now, where once you reach the data cap, it just filters to a slower speed, you're providing so much to those people who would otherwise have no access to those services. And it's all part of being the digital citizen in modern society. And if we're trying to implement tools like smart cities and that sort of technology that at this point is quite reliant on people having those devices, it needs to be provided. It's that, or we need to integrate those technologies into the fabric of the city itself so that you don't need your own personal device. Yeah. I imagine that's akin to, you know, like a a library or something, having a whole bunch of computers, you can just go in and and do your job applications and stuff on the library computer or whatever, but sort of at a, a much more granular level. But yeah, I'm wondering, like, it's going to be a basic human right to have a cell phone. (laughs) And, you know, whether you actually do it through a phone number or not, you're going to have some sort of identifying factor that that phone belongs to you and that you're, you know, connecting to these services and stuff. And you're right. I mean, people are happy that, that can afford to are happy to pay for faster internet. So as long as you give them a base one that's usable for government services, I know my my daughter recently just smashed her cell phone to bits and it it had her bus pass on it. And we called Calgary Transit and they said, like, what can we do? And they said, well, you get a one-time grace chance to copy it over to another cell phone, but other than that, you can't do anything. And we're like, well, she's not getting another cell phone anytime soon. So can we get a paper copy of the, the bus pass? And they're like, well, no, I'm sorry, you can't. And it's like... So you're stuck if you if you don't have your cell phone, you can't do anything. So it's really interesting how things have progressed. Yeah, it, it is interesting even with the transit passes, like you mentioned, where I'm actually on the Calgary Transit Customer Advocacy Group. So we have talked about those digital passes before, too, because even when you buy a booklet of tickets on there, there's an expiration date. So if you buy your booklet, it's only good for a month and you need to make sure to use those tickets. Whereas if you buy paper tickets, that's not the case because there's there's no digital tokens assigned to it in their system for for it. So they they also don't want people holding on to that digital ticket and then on their phone going, yeah, I'm going to use it now when a transit cop is coming on to the train. Whereas monthly passes, it's different because you're paying for the whole monthly pass. Now, is the you mentioned the phone got smashed. Is the ticket on the phone itself or is it on an account that she can still access it from if she had a new smartphone? It's sort of both. So it's it's on an it's on the transit app and it is it is allocated to her account, but it's been sort of assigned to that app. So if she goes to a new phone, downloads the app, and then logs in with her account, it'll be okay once. But then if she went to another phone, download and log into her account, it wouldn't work. So, so it's really interesting how they do it. And, and I, I don't know, like um, that whole concept of the past, like I never would have thought of that maybe because I'm, I'm uh, a, a law abiding citizen or whatever, but I never would have thought of that. Like, you know, you just, you just hold, you see the transit cop get onto the LRT and then you say, you just buy the ticket right there on your phone. You know, that's, that's kind of sneaky, but <laughs> I mean, there's probably a good way around that. I mean, they can put an IoT sensors at the doors of the C train station. So as soon as you come in, it it activates your ticket if you have one or something. I don't know, maybe that wouldn't work perfectly, but maybe when you leave the doors to go out onto the platform, that's when your your ticket gets activated or something like that. 
But yeah, that's fascinating. Like this, this kind of stuff, like what's the world going to look like in 10 years? I mean, I can't even imagine with the speed of technology growing and increasing and all the new incredible, you know, changes and discoveries that people are making all the innovations in this world i can't even imagine what the world's going to be like i mean if you listen to elon musk we're going to destroy ourselves because ai is going to take over and decide people are a pain in the ass and that's it (laughs) yeah we've seen enough science fiction movies about that and uh, the fourth matrix is due out this holiday season so (laughs) that is not a paid plug (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's really interesting and i think that um there's there's so many ways that things can go. I was I was following another, I don't know why I'm so much into cryptocurrencies. I'm becoming a bit of a crypto nerd, but there's another cryptocurrency called WorldCoin. And they actually have designed and built this orb, this giant chrome sphere with a camera in it. And the goal behind the coin is is a universal basic income. So what they do is you take your cell phone and again, just like you said, you now you have to have a cell phone. You download the wallet app and then you register yourself or sorry, you don't you don't register yourself. You, you, you create a password or whatever it is. Then it generates a barcode that you show to the orb. And then the orb asks you to scan your eyeballs and then it merges the wallet address with the eyeball scan and generates a cryptographic key then it sends the cryptographic key, not the eyeball scan, just the cryptographic key. It sends it to the the blockchain to determine whether somebody else has already created a wallet using those eyeballs. And if not, it registers that wallet address to those eyeballs. So if you think about it, they're, they're basically giving you some coins for universal basic income. But what other, I mean, if you knew the person standing in front of you with that wallet that that's the only wallet they have. Like they can't have two. You can't scan your dog's eyes or your horse's eyes because it has AI in it that knows that it's a human being. So you have this one-to-one, like every human being has a cell phone that has a wallet that's registered with their eyeballs that it's them. I mean, imagine what you could do with that, right? And it's still anonymous, right? Because if you had the person's wallet, public wallet address, you would be able to know that it's a unique individual, but you wouldn't know their name or the phone number or any of that other information. So it's really fascinating where these things are going. And I think when you tie that into all the other stuff that we talked about, like smart cities and things like that, I mean, how cool would it be to have your 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 retina displayed thing being the way that you can start your car. Maybe that's a bad example because your service guy would be screwed, but, or maybe you, you, you give access to the service guy, but, but, but just knowing that you are who you are and you guarantee that it's you, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And that's actually what I like the most about the crypto space. Like there's all the ups and downs that happen there with all of the market in one way or another, but it's the blockchain technology and thinking about those aspects of engagement and how the users are using that kind of system, right? Like, and this is where we're like right at the edge of science fiction truly becoming reality because what you're talking about is like, okay, well, either facial recognition or retinal recognition to be able to verify your identity. Then if we can provide services or systems that use that, then we're able to, embed the technology into the city so maybe if you need a transit ticket you don't need your phone you just go up to the transit kiosk and then it reads your face or your retina and then it already has that 
linked into your wallet, all of that is secured in private so that you're the only one accessing all of that. And then you're able to buy a ticket right there. But there's also the flip side of that, where if you look at the technology right now in China that they have implemented, so it's not just monitoring it for a service side, but also like your social insurance and your social number are all built into that. One of the examples that does happen in China right now, and I use this example quite often, is if you walk into a grocery store there and you have your Japanese or you have your Chinese social information, they will watch with the cameras exactly where you're walking in the store. And similar to the Amazon stores, how they track what objects you pick up, they're tracking your every movement. And if you decide to take a bottle of alcohol and then put it into your shopping cart and then walk around the store with it in your shopping cart, but you still put it back on the shelf and you don't even buy it, it still decreases your social score. Yeah, there's definitely a negative side to all of this stuff for sure. And that and that's something that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough is like, what are the negative sides of this? How can we implement it in a way that we're not such detrimentally affecting people's lives by creating barriers because there's that potential is to create more barriers than it does open doors and technology has such a capacity to open those doors but it's how do we implement it like we were talking about with the transit app i think there's a lot of things that could be redone and retooled in that to make it better for the user as well as more secure for those that are using it but like you said there's also like do we create gates at the doors we'd have to retrofit the trains to be able to create those kind of movement gates if it is using bluetooth or wi-fi to be able to communicate with the device to track it what happens if somebody puts their phone inside of a purse or bag that's a faraday cage and it's why we have to talk about it implement it test it and do that sort of penetrative testing rather than just running on an assumption that it'll work the way that it's intended. Yeah, no, that's 100%. Like, it's it's so hard to move technology forward because there's always somebody on the other side that wants to do something negative with it, right? Like, there's always that, uh, and it's so hard to to think about all the great things that could have could happen for our human lives to make lives easier and better for us. And then there's always somebody on the other side and, and you just got to always consider that. And, you know, like Facebook, it made so many billions of people or have Facebook's account and they've stolen the identities of, you know, all those billions of people. Now, thankfully the worst thing so far that they've really done was like, you know, send advertising saying that you're interested in a product that you've never even actually bought or whatever from what I've read. And that's allegedly, of course, but, you know, people were so easy to give away their identities to, to a social media app just so that they could talk to their friends and families all over the world. But if you think about Facebook, most people have a real problem with Facebook these days, even though they, a lot of people still use it, but the positive benefits are huge, right? Like being able to just uh, share some family photos on your account and having your grandmother on the other side of the world be able to see what's going on with your family and be able to have uh, conversations and make friends and build your network and stuff is, is a really, really powerful thing. But then you got the the Facebook now that, you know, censoring information and tweaking their algorithms so that you want to buy things and you want to see certain things and stuff. So there's always that, ah, that yin and yang of everything, right? Yeah, you know, it's a matter of finding that balance because everything that you implement technology wise is a double edged sword. 
It's just a matter of how sharp is either side of that sword. That's 100% true. Well, Ross, I think we we had a pretty interesting conversation there. It was a really a lot of fun to kind of geek out with you and talk about tech and all kinds of... I love this urban city, smart city, urban design kind of stuff that you're involved in. And you know, maybe we'll uh, get you back on the show sometime in the future when the world's changed quite a bit more from, from stuff and we'll ca- carry on from where we've left off. But I really, really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much, Alice. This was a really great discussion today. Well, you take care and uh, everybody will have another show for you in the following Tuesday after this show. And uh, if you'd like to be a host of the show, please reach out to us. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, we definitely want to hear your stories as well. So take care, everyone. Cheers. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Community Now Magazine. Engage, inspire, educate together. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>